Please be seated. Good evening to you. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 tonight. Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now. They have Bibles and uh, get their attention and they'll get one into your hands. And you can follow along not only with your ears but also with your eyes tonight. Please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you this evening. Well, we continue to join Solomon in his search for life and meaning uh, in life under the sun, under the S-U-N, in the context of the creation independent uh, of God. And so it's been a fairly miserable experience for him. Uh, his conclusion that is that life independent of God is empty and it's meaningless. And as we saw last week, in chapter 7, he kind of uh, changes a little bit. The tone of the book changes because he does what everybody has to do. And that is, if we reject God's uh, perspective and his instruction and wisdom related to life, right and wrong, where life is found, truth, these things, well, nobody can live independent of all of those things. So if I'm going to reject all of that from God, then it becomes incumbent upon me to produce my own philosophy for life. And that is a very, very big thing to try to put together considering who and what we are. But if you're not going to believe in God, you're forced to do it because you have to have a philosophy on life. You have to have something that you're putting your hope in. You have to have something, some idea of, if I live this way, then it translates into this or that. We can't live life with truth um, being redefined on a daily basis. We have to try and establish that on our own. And so that's what he endeavors to do. And because this is kind of his philosophy on life that he shares from chapter 7, almost to the very end of the book, like anybody's philosophy on life that they come up with independent of God, in some respects they're going to stumble upon the truth, and some of what he says will be true. And then a lot of it will be, uh, some of it will be false. Almost all of it is incomplete, and that's the problem. It's interesting that Solomon takes, as we'll see tonight, and he looks at life, he, and he comes to conclusions about life, but all of the conclusions that he comes to, all you have to do virtually, every one of them, is just ask an additional question of his observation and say, yeah, but why do you believe that? Yeah, but why is life this way? And just on the other side of the next question, you come face to face with God. But he stops short of that. And people do that all around us that are trying to navigate life independent of God today. They will develop a philosophy, but it will always be one step away from uh, the question that then brings them face to face with God, who then exposes the uh, flaws in our philosophy and then calls us to follow his way and his wisdom. So it is fascinating. So Grandpa Solomon 
puts an arm around our shoulders, and we're going to take a long walk with him now, and he's just going to kind of pour out his life. Sometimes I run into people, and, and, uh, and especially if they're a little older, or they're sitting alone or something like that, and you just get a little conversation going with them, and you say, so what's this all about? And uh, some of them have almost never given it a thought, you know. And then others, they have their ideas, and so they start to say it. And so we get this from Solomon as well. We left off in chapter 7, verse 1, so we'll pick up in chapter 7, verse 2. He said, better to go to the house of mourning, that is to a funeral or to a funeral home, than to go to the house of feasting, to go to a party. For that, that is the house of mourning, a funeral home, is the end of all men. And the living will take it to heart. They'll give consideration to the fact that every one of us is going to have a, uh, have a funeral service. Again, he's talking about this independent of God. He said, sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of the wise is the one who goes to the funeral, thinks about uh, what's going on in that environment. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. They just go from party to party to party, spending their entire life trying to ignore the reality of death. The problem is, is that death refuses to be ignored. Maybe you've noticed that. Death is kind of going around in human history. And so uh, he says it's foolish uh, to party and party party in an attempt to uh, escape the reality of death. And so he talks about the value of mourning and sorrow over feasting and uh, parting. So you say, how in the world could sorrow or attending a funeral be better than kind of a celebration at some kind of a party? And the answer is because a person will learn an awful lot more at a funeral than they ever will at a party. So parties are funner, no doubt about that, but they don't make the impact uh, that a funeral has upon our lives. It's a funny thing. Weddings and funerals are interesting events uh, for me to be a part of as a pastor. On one hand, um, each one of them in their own way is one of the most demanding things that I do, just because of personality. But, um, but in terms of funerals, I, I love them in another regard because here you have a whole group of people and most of the time at least half of the room and in some cases 90% of the room I've never seen before. I don't know that they ever go to church, even on Easter and Christmas. Just out of respect, they're going to come to a religious service related to the person who has died and then to be able to speak to them concerning the reality of death, which is typically right in front of us at a service like that, and to give consideration to it, and with the realization that this is something important that we're all doing on that day and something necessary uh, in their life. And so you think about parties. Parties, of course, are given in order. Uh, most often you talk about the whole party culture and everything. Why does that exist? That exists in order to try and escape from life, escape from the consciousness of our own uh, mortality, escape from facing and, and attempting to grapple with and answer the 
hard questions in life. And so funerals force us to face how short life is, how quickly and unexpectedly death can come, and it just makes us stop and give serious thought to a serious subject um, in life. Questions like, you know, why are we here? Why do, how do we get here? Why do people die? Why does death exist at all? What happens after death? And of course, only, um, the, uh, only the Bible supplies us with answers to those questions. Someone may protest a statement like that and say, well, there's a bunch of religions that talk about, you know, th- those answers, those questions. No, 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 study it a little more carefully. You have some religions in the world In fact, most religions in the world um, wax eloquently concerning death, what happens after death, but they have no answer for how we got here, Uh, why we are fallen in the condition we're in, why does death exist in the human condition at all, and why would I trust anyone who tries to speak authoritatively about death and life after death who cannot tell me where death came from and why we die? You're asking me to have more faith in you than God is asking me to have of him related to death in the Bible. And, and so it forces us to think about these things. And so Solomon is saying, only a fool. By the way, that's his language. It's right there in the passage. Only a fool goes through life without giving serious thought to death, to its existence, to its origin, what happens after it, and how to prepare for it. So uh, all of that is very, very true, but Solomon again stops short of asking those questions. Why? Because if you ask those questions, you're face-to-face with God. Again, it is interesting how people set their lives up. If I'm determined to reject God, I will always keep every facet of my life one question answered away from the ultimate truth, because the ultimate truth on every subject will bring me to God. And it takes a lot of work to do that, by the way, but some people are very determined. Solomon's determined to do it here to make his uh, point. Verse 5, it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise, a wise person rebuking us, than to hear uh, the song or the praise of uh, fools for like the crackling of thorns under a pot. I don't know if you've ever tried uh, to cook a a nice chicken uh, with a a nice fire of thorns. Well, the thorns that they'd use in those days, basically you'd use it for kindling to start a significant fire. But thorns, it just burns up in an instant and it's gone, so you can't do anything. It's not long-lasting, and that's the truth about the praise of fools. I mean, it burns bright for a moment, it feels good for a moment, but then you realize... Uh, that was a fool that was just uh, praising me. And so is the laughter of a fool. This also is vanity. So again, the value of rebuke, the value of constructive criticism by a wise person uh, into our life, it accomplishes more in our lives than all of the praise and good things that a fool uh, would speak to us. And so the importance uh, of that. So flattery, again, like kindling, it burns fast, it feels good for a moment, but then 
it's gone. But the rebuke of a wise man, that has a long-lasting effect. And so all of this is very, very true. Better to be criticized by a wise person than to be praised by a fool. So the proverb that he kind of gives here, it's his own proverb here, it does search us. And this is a proverb that, that matches the book of Proverbs. It, it searches us related to are we the kind of person that… Can you be rebuked? Will you accept rebuke? So that's what it's asking me. That's what the passage does. Other, other passages of Scripture like that. And it's a good thing to search. Some people, they can't be rebuked. They can't be criticized. Nobody can take them aside and say, you know, you ought to rethink that. That's not a very smart thing that you're doing there. They're completely threatened and they just look, they get all flustered and said, find me a fool that'll praise me. And that person isn't going to go anywhere in life. Anybody that ever becomes anything in life, and certainly true in the kingdom of God, is a person that is able to allow a person to come up, put their arm around them, and say, let's rethink what you just did there. Let's rethink how you see that situation, and that's how we grow and the value of it. Solomon on pretty solid ground uh, related to that. Verse 7, surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. In other words, don't ever trade your good character in for either uh, oppressing of people who you have power or authority over. That's a sure way to destroy our, our character. When we have the upper hand in a situation and now we're going to use that power against them to oppress people to our own advantage, people will look at that and they'll remember it and will be diminished in their eyes as a result of it, our character. Equally damaging is when a person who is thought to have good character and then they take a bribe and uh, they can be bought and uh, both of those things uh, debase the heart. Verse 8, the end of a thing is better than the beginning. And so here Solomon is talking about the uh, uh, patience and the importance of patience and self-control. And the idea is don't lose heart simply because the, uh, a particular course of action or a decision means that things are going to get harder on the short term before they get better. And so his, his counsel is keep your eyes on the better that is coming instead of the immediate hardship. And so enjoy the process. Be confident that if you're doing the right thing, it's going to have a, a, a proper ending to it. And that's very, very solid advice. He said the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. And so Solomon recognized that a lot of impatience in the part of people is because of pride, where their first reaction, a proud reaction to difficulty, <clears throat> looks something like this. I'm too good to be in this situation. I'm too important to be in a trial like this. I'm too busy to be in a difficulty like this. And so they feel that they're too important and too big and too proud to uh, be in those kind of trials and in those uh, kind of, uh, of difficulties. And so they, they don't think that that kind of a process works for them. They're above all of that. Well, you can be as proud as you want related to your circumstances and 
you say, I'm, I'm going to fight the, the process here, and all we're going to do is just fight ourselves. The process is the process, and all we're going to do is make ourselves more miserable by being proud uh, in the middle of it. He says in verse 9, don't hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. And so, don't respond, he says, in anger respond in wisdom. So, a quick temper, a brooding, seething anger that some people live with. Some people are just hot-tempered, poof, like this, and then in five seconds it's all kisses and candy and flowers and all of this. I'm not saying violence, but they're just, you know, go off like that. I'm not advocating. It's not right. And then other people, they just go deep down into this brooding anger, and they're going to make everything, everybody pay for what just happened here in their situation. And Solomon had seen a fair amount of that uh, evidently in his life. And uh, he said, those aren't signs of strength in a person's life, but they're the marks of a fool. You say, ouch, that kind of hurts. Well, yeah, that's the way the Bible is sometimes. <laughs> but, um, you know, when the fool inside of us gets poked, you know, it… it uh, it wants to squawk a little bit. Someone has said, you can judge the size of a man by the size of what it takes to make him lose his temper. And there's a little bit of that in terms of what Solomon is saying here. Verse 10, do not say, why were the former days uh, better than these days? I'll tell you, I remember the good old days and stuff. See, verses like this, even I get convicted. So, because I, I have a little bit of that in my heart at all. You've never noticed. So he says, do not say, why are the former days better than these? Uh, but don't worry, I'll wiggle my way out of it and, um, and make somebody else the brunt of this proverb before I'm through. He said, for you do not inquire wisely concerning this. And so here's an exhortation not to dwell on the past or live on the past. Now, this is a particular um, this afflicts the older person um, uh, much more than the younger person. Not because the younger person is superior to the older person. We all know better than that. <laughs> but for the simple reason that a younger person doesn't have two seasons in their life to compare one to the other with yet. Everything's future for them. And so an older person is able to say, yes, I remember my 20s, I remember my 30s, I remember life in the world at that time, and I know what they are now, and it was a lot better, not in all regards, but in many regards, and certainly we could argue for the case that morally and spiritually in our country things were better, maybe in an earlier time within life or where, you know, people are and how they conduct themselves in life. Almost all older people that I talk with, and of course, uh, an old person is someone who's just slightly older than you. So, older people that I talk to, I mean, almost all of them are just mortified at what, where the world is heading, how fast it's heading. 
and uh, in, just in terms of how people conduct themselves, the character, the absence of character uh, in people. And so it's something that, you know, we have to deal with, especially when we're living in a world and a nation that is on a downward trend spiritually at the moment and uh, morally in terms of godly character. But here is the exhortation. He's going to give us his philosophy on life, and that is to don't div- live unduly in the past. Don't always be talking about the good old days and the ideas to such a degree that you don't enjoy today. There's a lot to enjoy today, no matter how good the old days uh, were, Solomon is saying. And so there's that tendency to compare today with yesterday and, and with certain other times in history, uh, depending on where we are in history. Yesterday can have been a better time than it is today. But Solomon is saying, and it's a good word to us, that yesterday is gone. You're, we're never going to bring yesterday back uh, by constantly complaining about the, what the world is like uh, today. And so there is practical truth in what he's saying here and that. But as Christians, it's, what he's saying here isn't the complete truth. As Christians, we are to notice a spiritual decline. And, uh, and we do notice a spiritual decline that is going on. And if it continues, we'll look back and say things were a lot better 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago, not in all regards again, but in uh, that regard. And so we are to uh, notice that decline and then uh, to, in, in, you know, wherever God has put us to serve Him, then to work hard and to, to uh, work, to notice that that decline has happened and then serve the Lord in order to reverse that decline that is uh, occurring and to do that through the expansion of the kingdom of God. But even in doing that, there is the recognition that we have to live in the present to, in order to do that. We'll never, ever accomplish changing the con- way things are today about talking about how they used to be, but rather by being what God wants us to be at this moment in human history. Verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable for those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense, as money is a defense, but the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom, uh, is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. And so he speaks about the value of wisdom, and it's good to have wisdom when you receive an inheritance. It could be speaking that. Um, If you've ever seen someone receive an inheritance and they lack wisdom, what happens? It's gone. The whole inheritance is just wasted out of a lack uh, of, of wisdom. And it can also mean that wisdom is a better inheritance than money. And that's an important truth, and there's much the Bible has to say to affirm that particular truth. In fact, both of them, given the choice of having an inheritance from your parents uh, or from your family, uh, would you rather have an inheritance of money but not have been raised in godly wisdom, or would you rather have been raised in godly wisdom and not have money? Well, the choice Solomon says to make here is to take wisdom over money every time. And he was an authority on wisdom and money, you know, independent of his uh, search here. He speaks about the fact that wisdom 
provides a greater protection than money. And one of the reasons that it does is an inheritance can be lost overnight. Money can be lost overnight. But when we possess wisdom, no one can ever take that away from us. That's a riches that is ours. We take that with us no matter where we are in life. And of course, and, and so the superiority of wisdom over money and the necessity of wisdom uh, if you do receive money. Verse 13, consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? And the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider. Surely God has appointed the, the one as well as the other, both times of joy and times of adversity, uh, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. And so the idea here is just to submit to the, uh, the you know, the puzzling kind of ways of God. And so he says, God is almighty. Who can win in a battle against him? I never have, by the way. If you have, talk with me about it afterwards. So he's saying, just enjoy, enjoy prosperity in life. Enjoy joy, but also learn to enjoy adversity is a part of life as well as what he's saying, because there's nothing that you can do about it. All, everybody's life is made up of joy and made up of adversity as well. I remember as a kid, I used to hear adults say, everything has a purpose. Everything has a purpose. Everything has a purpose. And the idea behind it was that everything is good in the sense that everything does something good in us, but seasons of joy, seasons of adversity, and uh, often they do, but that's not always true uh, about, uh, about life. But it keeps people positive when they're in the midst of adversity, which is the best that you can do when you're under the sun and you're going to operate in adversity apart from God. But again, Solomon is going to leave God out of the equation, but how much better to face adversity in life with a promise of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purposes. That's a better way to look at life. But Solomon, again, doesn't go there because he's trying to navigate it independent of God. Verse 15, so you come up with all this plaque fodder that people have and uh, in the gift stores and all of these things that are basically designed to keep people happy and keep them hopeful in the midst of their trials, but not quite lead them to God. And so Solomon's kind of putting a little bit of that out uh, at this point in time. By the way, those plaques sell very, very well. In uh, verse 15 through 18, Basically, he's communicating here, don't be extreme. And the idea that, he, that he's wanting to uh, tell us here is the key to life is found in living life right in the middle of this big anonymous mass of humanity. Don't, don't stand out. Whatever you do, do don't stand out. 
Don't become excellent in anything that you stand, uh, would stand out for. Don't become so wicked that you stand out uh, in any way. Don't be overly anything. And he repeats this word overly three times in the, the four verses. Verse 15, I've seen, I have seen everything in my days of vanity. There's a just man who perishes in his righteousness. He dies, though. He's been the greatest, greatest guy you could ever know. And then there's a wicked man who lives a long life in his wickedness. You can basically saying, listen, I, there's no figure in this world out anyway. People that should live a long life don't, and people who shouldn't live a long life, uh, they do. And, uh, and, and that's just how all of it you know, operates here. And so he says, do not be, and here's the word, overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Don't, why are you killing yourself? Don't be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good for you to grasp this, and also not remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them all. And so he talks about the fact that it, that uh, things don't work out. You can't figure the world out in terms of righteousness should always translate into blessing and long life and all of this, but it doesn't. And, and the other thing is upside down too in terms of, of the wickedness. And so he's trying, to, he's trying to grapple with life, but he's trying to figure out justice and righteousness uh, within the context of this life. So it's just going to be m m miserable. If I didn't know God and I looked at life in this world, I'd say this is the cruelest joke. This is just an absolutely cruel joke that we're in the middle of because it's so unfair on so many levels and there's so much suffering. And so Solomon, he kind of has a little bit of that going on. Why? Because he feels that just righteousness should always be rewarded and wickedness should always be judged. It doesn't happen in this life. But because he's trying to figure this out under the sun, he can't let his mind go to the fact that ultimately it will be dealt with. If not in this life, then in the life to come. And, and so, but he's got to stay below that. As Paul said, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. A lot of stuff that doesn't get squared away in this life will be squared away in the life to come. In terms of reward for the righteous, there's many parts of the world where righteousness does not pay materially. All it's going to bring you to walk with God is persecution and difficulty. And if you just looked at that and said there's no heavenly reward from God on the other side of this life related to it, it's going to be very confusing. And again, the same thing, realizing there's an eternal judgment that is going to occur for the wicked. Nobody's getting away with anything. He says 
in verse 16, he said, basically, since there isn't some, any set formula for what righteousness and wickedness will translate to in, in life, this life, then the best thing is to avoid them all. So don't draw any attention to yourself. Don't overly anything, whether it's good or bad. You'll live longer if you just lay low, go under the radar, and mind your own uh, business. And so life is found in just living it safe, living in the mass, and don't stand out. And he exhorts in verse 18 to hold tight to his counsel related to this. Well, in all of this, uh, Solomon is way, way, way off base. And the problem with living that kind of a life where you say, okay, I'm not going to excel either in righteousness or in wickedness, is that you'll miss out on all of life. If I choose not to excel in something and to excel in, uh, in righteousness, and of course as Christians we are to excel in our Christian life. And the Bible said, is, is Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they, uh, when they see your good works, they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are to stand out in this world. Um, even when it means bad attention comes our way. And so, uh, because the most important thing in life for the Christian is not longevity. I mean, everybody wants to live as long as we're supposed to live, but we aren't like the rest of the world where it's like this is all there is. We know that this isn't all there is. And so we don't hold on to life the same way that they do. And we're just gonna, I'm going to eke out every extra five minutes I can by being a nothing and a nobody and just a little part in the big machine. And we realize that, hey, we're intended to stand out, be distinctive. We are intended to be noticed and as a result, uh, and for excellence, and as a result, the God that we serve. And if we fail to do that, then we're going to miss out on all of life. You can live a long life and not have lived life at all. I think about Jim Elliott, of course, and related to all of this, where he wrote, one life to live, to soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And that's the truth of it. And his life burned bright and was uh, shorter than the life of most wicked people. And he was a righteous person, but he lived life. And his life, of course, is just uh, starting, been in the uh, glory of heaven now for decades. Verse 19, wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten rulers of the city. So wisdom in a person is a greater source of strength than political power or armed might. Verse 20, for there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. So here's Solomon's observation that everyone is a sinner. So he is absolutely in accord with the Bible. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the Bible teaches. And so everybody is a sinner. That's his observation. But what he doesn't do is ask the next question that would bring him face to face with God, and that is, why are everybody sinners? And to ask that question then 
takes us back to Genesis chapters 1 through 3 and then face-to-face with God. But he doesn't want to come face-to-face with God, so he just makes observations, asks questions only so far, and then stops short, again, as so many people do today. Verse 21, also do not take to heart everything people say. That's a good piece of counsel, isn't it? Especially for those of us who are a little hypersensitive on things. Don't take to heart. Don't let it get a place inside of your heart. Everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. The person that's hypersensitive, uh, instead of just going on about business in their life, they'll hear, they'll notice every little, you know, uh, uh, cutting thing or every little thing where they're not the hero of the story or they receive the praise or that kind of thing. He says, for many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. And so, exhortation not to be overly sensitive and to don't take seriously every bad thing that people uh, say about you. And he gives the reason for it. In verse 22, because we know uh, the same kind of wickedness to say uh, evil things about other people is in our own hearts. And that's one of the things that helps us deal with uh, the failures in other people's life, the shortcomings uh, in their lives, is to have a sense that uh, that wickedness is in our own heart as well. Again, I think this is one of the blessings of growing a little bit older, where uh, the older you get, the more and more as a Christian we become like Christ, but the more and more of a history that we have of failing and falling short. And so, when we have a history of so much failure in our own life or coming up short, then when you're older and you run into a person who falls short in a situation or whatever it might be, and you're compassionate about, about it, you're more understanding about it, doesn't get under your skin, you just realize, you know, um, I've been there, I've done that, I know God is going to work in their life and bring them beyond that. It's not the end of the world, and you just move on. And so, uh, it, it helps us to... Uh, to realize that, hey, that same thing is inside of me, and and, uh, it helps us to be patient uh, with people. And Solomon says that if the truth were made known, many of us would be ashamed if others knew of the things that we said about other people when they were not present. And so, we can't expect people uh, to behave any better than we behave. And so somebody says something that slanders us or they say something that hurts us and we look and we say, well, you know, I've done a bit of that in my life too and, and that's just the way that it is. And so it makes us more patient with people that make mistakes. And that's one of the advantages, I think, of getting a little bit older, a little bit older in the Lord. doesn't mean that we don't exhort. It doesn't mean that we don't rebuke. But we know it's not the end of the world when somebody sins or they make a mistake. I remember one time I was with a gentleman, and uh, somebody had done something wrong, and he was going on and on and on and on and on. You get the idea? on and on and on about it, and I just about couldn't take hearing like another five seconds of it, and I broke in and I said, you know, I made a mistake once. 
So start hammering me. You know, it's just like people are not perfect. What are we going to do about that? And Solomon kind of speaks that to us a little bit. In verse 23, all of this I have proved by wisdom. And I said, I will be wise. And so Solomon here in this next section through verse 29, he expresses his disappointment with mankind as a whole. You disappointed with mankind as a whole? (laughs) He's disappointed with mankind as a whole here. And he starts by talking about women, his disappointment with women. All this I have proved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? I applied my heart to know, to search, and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things, to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness, and I find more bitter than death. So here he gets on the gals a little bit, the woman, but a particular type of woman. I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, probably talking about a prostitute that is drawing men into uh, sexual immorality, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God will escape from her. The idea is that the only person that can escape her um, enticements is someone who knows God, but everybody else is trapped by her. And he looked down upon of the immoral uh, woman. And then he moves on to the perversion of man, verse 27. Here is what I have found, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find out the reason which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. But I, one man among a thousand, I... Uh, ha- one man among a thousand I have found in terms of that's how rare they are, those that are uh, seek, you know, righteousness. But a woman among uh, all these I have not found. In other words, I haven't even found one. They are rarer still. And truly, this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And so, as he looks at the perversion of women, the perversion of man, uh, as, as he looks at all of it, he comes to the conclusion uh, related to them and his disappointment in, in all of them. He, uh, he looks and says, I see something good that is in man. He talks about God in verse 29. I recognize that they're made, uh, may have to be, we have to be made from God, but there's so much sin and so much complication that it, it made him... Uh, you know, doubt all of that. So then we come here into uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Who is like a wise man, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the sternness of his face is changed. And what he's communicating here is a wise man knows how to kind of discern the situation that they're in, and then they conduct themselves accordingly. So here is a person that gets introduced into an environment where everybody's happy. That's the appropriate way to conduct himself, handle himself in the situation then he will change from his stern face into a happy face. And basically, it's a person who knows how to be appropriate 
in, uh, and the importance of it in various situations. Uh, Solomon then, beginning in, uh, in uh, verse 2 of chapter 8, he starts to talk about uh, recommending submission to rulers or submission to authority. We don't have kings. We just have presidents and a whole bunch of other people who act like kings uh, with him. But uh, so, and, and all the way down sometimes just to the local level and all. So the passage that he speaks to us here is how to deal with those that are in authority and uh, interacting with those kind of people. He says in verse 2, he says, at, uh, in verse 1, who is like a wise man and who knows the interpretation? Oops, I've already been there. Excuse me. Verse uh, 2, I say, keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. And so he commends obedience on the basis of the fact that government is an institution of God. We may not always like government, the decision that governments make, but he's saying that government is usually better than anarchy. Uh, we'll find out. Verse 3, he says, Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil thing, for he does whatever pleases him. And so he says, Don't do anything that will displease the king or the person in authority, even if it's a king or someone who is issuing the building permit on a local level. So if you have a fit of frustration and you stomp out of their presence or, uh, or you plot evil against them or something like that, then uh, it's not going to, you know, advance your cause before. It's not going to gain the favor of those in authority. Verse 4, where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? The idea is recognize the power of the king and don't challenge him. He who keeps his commandment will experience nothing harmful. And a wise man, man's heart discerns both time and judgment. And so obedience and respect is the safest policy in dealing with people in authority, he tells uh, us, because the kind of person that deals with a person in authority with respect and obedience, they don't have, they don't have to fear provoking the displeasure of uh, the superior and, and uh, in terms of authority. Verse 6, because for every matter there is a time and judgment, uh, though the misery of man increases greatly. In other words, in dealing with people in authority, be sensitive to your timing. How many of you wives or husbands, both of us, we understand that there's a good time to bring something up and there is a bad time to bring something up. Timing is everything so often on discussing something. Same thing with people that are in authority. Be aware uh, of, of your time. Be sensitive and choose the right time. Uh, concerning misery, he talks about there in uh, verse 6, though the misery of man increases greatly. Here's the recognition that people in authority, it looks like their job is really easy. And I remember when I worked for the phone company, I was, I was blue-collar, I was labor. And then... Um, and then there were certain blocks of time where on a temporary basis, 
I was in management, and so I got offered management in every position I ever held in the phone company, and, uh, but always turned it down, and it was the Lord just guiding me away from it because He had other plans in mind for my life, I'm sure, and plus I looked at it and said, man, who needs the aggravation? But so often on the cruise, you hear all the whining and the complaining about, oh, you're a stupid idiot, and can anybody knows and the whole deal. And then you get out of there and you get into the management position and you see that their world is ten times bigger than this group even understands. And then all of a sudden the decisions are, make sense because there's a much bigger picture that they have to take into account. And to give leaders that kind of a benefit uh, of the doubt. So often they do something and they do it based upon facts that they can never really communicate to us. Verse 7, for he does not know what will happen, so who can tell him when it will occur? So to understand the limitations of the greatest uh, of, of leaders, they cannot know the future. And so if we believe you know, if, if we don't understand the limitations of leaders, we will place um, unrealistic, impossible expectations on them, and then all they will able to do is disappoint. By the way, have you seen the polling on President Obama and the Congress? Low man, historically low and all. So obviously, they're not meeting uh, the people's expectations. They may be meeting your expectations, and I know uh, Congress, the Senate, and the House of Representatives are not monolithic, so not every representative is like everybody else. But it's a goofy thing because when government decides to become um, the God, they're going to erase God from the national consciousness, and they're going to take the place of God in people's lives, and you then portray yourself as being able to pull off what only God can pull off, you're going to ratchet people's expectations way up, and you're never going to be able to meet those expectations. And so there's always going to be that disappointment. So sometimes it happens where the people put unrealistic expectations upon leaders uh, and that they can never live up to. And then sometimes in the age that we're living in here, at least a little bit, uh, they are taking a mantle upon themselves that are raising people's expectations and they're not able uh, to deliver. No one, verse 10, has power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit, and no one has power in the day of death. No matter how powerful the leader is, he can't defeat death or she. There is no release from that war, and wickedness will not deliver those who are given uh, to it. All this I have seen and applied my heart to every work that is done under the sun. There is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. And here is Solomon's recognition of the fact that he's calling for uh, us in his own wisdom to live a life of submission toward government, to be respectful toward government and leaders. But he also realizes that very, very often kings only use their position to then harm others. So he's saying it's not ideal, but it's better than anarchy and civil war. And, uh, but again, this because he's looking at things, you know, under the sun. We'll stop there tonight, and we'll pick things up in uh, chapter 8, verse 10 next week as 
Grandpa Solomon uh, takes and gives us his wisdom. And, but it's all very, very insightful to some of us. Again, we will recognize our own uh, attempt to develop our own philosophy of life before we came to know the Lord, and what a weak and feeble thing it was in comparison to God's wisdom and His plan for us. Or we're interacting with people that are in that very, very place in our, in our neighborhoods, our friendships at school, in our own families, and then to understand, ah, they, they, they've developed this philosophy, but boy, look how they keep one question short of being coming to God. And then sometimes to ask God, God, in these conversations that I'm having, I want them to know the Lord. Would you give me that one question that takes them beyond their philosophy and puts them face to face with your reality and the answers that you give to the questions in life that they're trying to answer on their own. Let's have the worship team come forward and um, we'll close our service tonight with prayer, but uh, first we'll get an opportunity to spend a few minutes just worshiping the Lord.